Welcome to Virgin Territory, a podcast brought to you by SHIP. Each episode brings you new guests and new topics. We ask all the questions you are dying to know, from dating, sexual education and wellness, to kink, polyamory, and everything in between. Now please welcome your host, Vima Manfredo. Welcome back, everyone, for another episode of Virgin Territory. I'm sure you all missed my voice, but I had to take a little vacation. Um, but we are back, and we are joined by the wonderful Izzy. Uh, welcome, Izzy, to our episode. How are you doing? I'm good. Thanks for having me. So I guess the very first place where we should be starting is, if you don't mind giving us an introduction on who you are and what your background is and all that wonderful stuff. Definitely. My name is Izzy Abraham Rapeson. I'm comfortable with they and she pronouns interchangeably. And I am a sexuality educator based in Philadelphia. I have a master's of education in sexuality education from Widener University. And I am one of the founders of YES. Um, I'm the executive director of YES. And YES provides intersectional, anti-oppressive, consent-based, pleasure-focused sexuality education to people of all ages. Um, We've worked with kids as young as three um, and parents of kids even younger than that, and all the way through adults and grandparents. Um, and I've written a children's book about consent called The Great Big Hug, illustrated by Todd Hall. Um, and that is a little bit of what I do. I could keep going, but that's <laughs> probably enough for now. Oh, this is wonderful. Um, so all of you can guess now why Izzy's here. The, the mission of Yes is mirrors very closely to the mission of SHIP, just in Philadelphia. Um, but it's it's great that there are more organizations that have this same um, area of sex education and bringing sex education to everyone. Um, so tell me a little bit more about the work that YES, yes does. <laughs> yeah, okay. Um, so YES does a lot of different things. One thing I really like about it is that it's kind of like this container for a lot of different projects and ideas and, and and wherever people's energy and enthusiasm lies, we can kind of say, yes, we'll do that, um, which has been great. Um, one consistent piece has been workshops for young people on different aspects of sexuality education. We started with a big focus on consent education and have expanded, uh, although all of our sexuality education is consent-based. Um, we run a sexuality education program in South Philadelphia for first through eighth graders currently. Um, so that's a big piece of what we do. And then we've also, since the pandemic really, uh, developed a robust adult education program as well. So we do a lot of parent workshops on how to talk to kids about sexuality workshops for healthcare providers and other workshops for adults on boundaries and body liberation and healthy relationships and, um, a lot of other things. Uh, one series that we did this year was the redefining health series. So every month we did a workshop on a different aspect of, um, radical healthcare and self-advocacy in the healthcare system. Um, we have a podcast called What is Sex, which I co-host with Rebecca Klein, another co-founder of Yes. Uh, and every episode of our podcast, we explore a different anonymous question we've gotten from a young person in a sex ed class. And that is on pause right now, but we plan to come back with season four at some point in the future, probably not too distant future. Um, we have a story sharing project called Verbatim. We have a social media that is meant to be educational as well. And we have a bunch of volunteers and interns who work on our, our social media. And we have a coloring book about consent on our website. And we are always doing other, <laughs> other things as well. Whatever, whatever we are feeling excited about. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a fun adventure, <laughs> always something new. It definitely sounds like a fun adventure. I may need to print that coloring book. I'm, um, I got really into coloring books, uh, when at the beginning of the pandemic, it was a good way of shutting the world down for a little bit. So I may need to do that one. Um, but that, that's a lot of great work that Jess is doing. Uh, how do you decide to create this organization? Thank you. Um, so 
Shortly after I graduated from college, I moved back to my hometown of Montclair, New Jersey, and um, some other friends who I graduated from high school with were also around, and we wanted to offer consent education in our high school because we knew that we didn't get the consent education that we needed to prepare us for college and adulthood. Um, and so we were trying to get into the high school to do consent education and we're told that we weren't a legitimate organization. If only we were an official organization, then maybe they could let us in. So that was really the original inspiration. We said, okay, fine, we'll make up a name, we'll get a logo, we'll get a website so that we can do consent education in our high school. But um, in that process, I was also being trained as a sexuality educator by Stephanie Franklin at the Masakane Center in Newark and just falling in love with sexuality education and, and discovering its its power, which was so much bigger than anything I had experienced from sex ed growing up. And so much, um, it, it just can can touch so many more areas of someone's life than just sexual health, and which I was discovering at the time. And so um, I really dove into sex ed and we had to be creative in ways that we could do sex ed when we weren't allowed in the high school at first, which is when we started our story sharing project and made some videos and made our social media accounts thinking like, how can we reach young people um, if we're not allowed to come into the school? And ultimately we did make it into the school and now three out of the four of the original founders have, I'm sorry about that sound. I should turn the sound off my phone. <laughs> but Three of the original um, four co-founders now live in Philadelphia and are really committed to building community here. So um, since then, we've, we've shifted our focus to, to Philly and then also elsewhere during the pandemic when things were virtual. So um, it continues to develop based on the community's needs and what else is going on. Yeah, it's it's such an important topic because... If I want to remember my sex education in high school, middle school, and even in college, it, it left a lot to be desired. Mm-hmm. Um, it was basically fear mongering of if you have sex, you will get all the STIs and get pregnant and die. Pretty much like the that movie with Lindsay Lohan that I forget the name. Um, Girls, yeah. Yeah, that one. <laughs> uh, that, that was basically the only difference is no gym class, but that was basically my sex education. So I'm really happy that kids these days, and I use that as if I was very old, um, get, have access, at least the ones in, in Philly, and I hope in other places too, have access to some education. Um, I imagine you've gotten a couple of doozies when, uh, when your team is giving classes or courses on school. So what, what have been some of the most common misconceptions about sex ed in high school? It's mm, a good question. The most common misconceptions. Um, I'm going to think about that for a minute. I think, I think um, young people know a lot more than I did at that age about a lot of things, including gender identity and sexual orientation, I think still some of the um, most confusion I I tend to find around actual like anatomy and um, yeah, how different body parts work and, and what they're called. Um, There's definitely also misconceptions around consent sometimes. Uh, at first people might think like, oh, well, you can't change your mind partway through or, well, if they said yes, then it's okay. Even if they didn't really feel their yes, but it's usually pretty easy with a little bit of challenging for people to be like, oh no, like that doesn't, that's not right. Um, a lot of it's like, I think pretty intuitive and young people are really wise and smart (laughs) and cool. Yeah. Um, Yeah, I don't know if I've encountered like a ton of misconceptions. I think it's more just that often young people have never talked about some of these things before or no one's ever talked to them about these things. So I get a lot of um, like ew reactions, like you can't talk about that. Like that's disgusting. Um, But even that is is often 
pretty quickly overcome, which I think is really cool. Like a kid who thinks it's disgusting at the beginning of class by the end of class might be using some of the words or um, just yesterday I taught an anatomy class to seventh and eighth graders on vulva and penis anatomy. And when I first showed the diagrams, a lot of them tried to kind of run away. One of them put her hair over her eyes and was like, I don't want to see this. Um, there was a lot of like, ew, 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 I can't believe you're showing us this. I hate this. And by the end, when we were playing the review game, they're all just like clitoris, <laughs> foreskin, you know, like just yelling out these words. Um, so that was really hopeful to me. I, I was worried that I might lose them <laughs> for this. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder if that initial reaction has more to do with how their parents or their guardians react to those things. And they're just mimicking that same grossness until they discover, oh, this is normal because it's a body part. The same as how does our noses work? Mm -hmm. Then how does our penises work? How does our vulvas work? Um, So I imagine that there could be a little bit of that as well. Yeah, definitely. And also just, you know, not knowing what I'm going to say about penises and vulvas. It's totally new. No teacher has ever like held up a giant penis poster before. So I'm sure there's some worry, like what's about to happen. And then when they realize like, oh, there's nothing that exciting happening. I'm literally just saying the names of the parts of a penis, like nothing that shocking, nothing that like um, scandalous. I think that it just becomes another lesson. Um, with, you know, a lot of them did have moments, depending on what I was talking about, that were too much for them. And they found ways to kind of self-regulate, which I thought was really nice. Um, like one of them was like, okay, that was too much for me and walked away. And then he came back. It was like, they were kind of knew when they needed a break, um, when they were overwhelmed. At one point when I was talking about the clitoris having a lot of nerve endings and, and how, um, nerve endings are why sex feels good. Some of them were like, that's enough. (laughs) (laughs) I I can't say for this. Um, But then they came back. So yeah, they were figuring out what they could handle. Yeah, that that's very helpful for the future, actually, Uh, knowing that kids are resilient, and they, they know what to do with their own selves. Um, And now they have additional tools after you you give the the classes. Um, So that's really good. But since they're kids, uh, how has it been to work with their parents or their guardians? Has there been any pushback from them from your classes? Yeah, I mean, the answer is no, actually. It's a good question, though. Um, I with this, with this particular class I was just talking about, I, I run their first through eighth grade sex ed program, and I've worked with this organization for four years now. Um, and every year we've kind of built more um, work with families and parents. But from the beginning, we met with parents before we ever taught anything to the kids to check in about the curriculum plan and what parents felt excited about in the curriculum and what they felt nervous about and what they wanted for their kids. And this year we were able to do that in an even more robust form where we had a workshop with parents before the semester started to really kind of try to co-create and co-envision a curriculum. Um, and we chose topics with that in mind, with the the parents' interests. I've, I've actually never gotten pushback from parents in this organization that something was not appropriate for their children. And I've gotten so much eagerness and support um, from them. And they've shared a lot about how their lack of sex ed affected their lives in really negative ways and they want better for their kids and they want support in doing that because when you as an adult didn't get good sex ed, it's really hard to give your kids good sex ed. So um, we had, yeah, that co-creating the curriculum workshop. And then we had another workshop just for parents about how to talk to kids about different sexuality topics. And we're about to have a third workshop with the parents um, third from of the semester um, to practice like the actual dealing with teachable moments and answering questions from kids. So it's been a really positive, um, experience. And, and, you know, it was, it really surprised the staff at the organization. They, they, the staff at first was saying like, oh, we wish we could teach puberty and periods and, you know, sex stuff, but the parents, I'm sure they won't want that. And I was like, well, let's ask them. And when we did ask them, they said, yeah, we want that. We want our kids to talk about those things. So 
That's been great. And a lot of people are really surprised by it. But that's something that I think statistics always show that most parents in the US want more sex ed for their kids, which I think is like not the conception that a lot of us have in our minds. Um, And in general, I've had a lot of support from parents and I've really loved doing parent workshops, which I think is a way to, yeah, I got a lot of buy-in and build trust because then they know me and (laughs) they're not, I I get being scared of like a stranger being responsible for your kid's sex ed. You don't know what they're going to say. You don't know what their values are. So um, yeah, but we've been able to, to stay connected. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense, especially if you already break the ice with the parents first, and then they have a, a little bit of a sense of the content of your character and also the content of your of your classes and what you're planning to teach them. And that gives it a, a little bit of a peace of mind um, instead of being this this unknown blob of, of unknown. <laughs> um, I make a lot of sense sometimes today. It's not one of those days. <laughs> Um, so given that your, your work is in classrooms, that meant that this past year, 2020 and most of 2021 turned your world upside down a little bit. Uh, how has been teaching sex education during the the pandemic? Oh man, so hard. (laughs) I I actually grew to really love zoom workshops with adults. Um, there's some things you can do on zoom that you can't do in person. And that has been cool. And our work has been able to reach all over the world, which has been really amazing. We've had, um, people in Armenia and Kyrgyzstan and yeah, many continents, um, come to our workshops this year. So that part's great. And I, I can appreciate it with adults with kids. I just hate it so much. I like, felt so sad every time I I got on Zoom with kids um, and they just refused to turn their cameras on and refused to unmute, which I don't blame them for at all. Like they were setting boundaries. They were at home with their parents. Of course, they didn't want to participate in a sex ed class when their family's in the next room. Um, so it was really hard. It was really hard. I um, It was hard to connect. It was hard to feel close to each other and to have moments of connection outside of the curricular moments. It was hard to be silly and have fun and play games. I invented so many Zoom games to try (laughs) to make it fun. Yeah. Uh, We ended up watching a bunch of TV to try to do like media literacy analysis um, because I thought that might be better on Zoom if we're on a screen anyway. So that, that worked out okay, but I'm so grateful to be back in person with the, the young people. Yeah. Do you envision doing a hybrid between online for adults and in person for kids in the future? Yeah, all all my adult education has has stayed virtual so far. Um, That will change in 2022 where it'll be some of each. But yeah, there is something really nice about I mean, I used to have to travel really far to teach at colleges and now I can work with them from home, which saves them the money for my train ticket and hotel room. And that's nice. Uh, and yeah, there is a bigger reach. And for some people, it's more accessible. People with disabilities or people who um, wouldn't have had the time to get somewhere else um, and get home again, but maybe have the time to tune in. So I definitely think we'll we'll keep some of that available, especially during the winter when people might be less likely to leave their homes. But we also had some really nice um, outdoor sex ed. Yeah, it hasn't all been virtual because we did a few outdoor events in in a garden this spring. And that was also really great. So hopefully we'll get the best of both worlds moving forward. But with with kids sticking with in-person, even though in-person is also really hard right now because we're all in masks and we're staying six feet apart and we're only doing outside. We're about to go inside um, in January, but... Right now we've been all outside and it's really hard to hear each other Mm. and it's hard to see each other's faces, but it's still so much better than Zoom. Yeah. Yeah. There's a big difference between having kids, especially younger kids on Zoom Mm -hmm. and having an adult or young adults on Zoom, like the 
it's a lot more difficult to have the attention of a eighth grader than having the attention of a 12th grader or a, co- or a college kid. Definitely. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I was on Zoom with first graders too. Like it was Ooh. really, really <laughs> terrible. That and was tough. A lot of Zoom also depends on being able to write and read because you're using the chat and like other ways of participating online. And if students aren't really comfortable writing or writing quickly, that's really challenging. Um, yeah, it was hard in a lot of ways, but yeah, I'm, I'm glad that we have this other option. So speaking of uh, online workshops, you recently did a workshop with us at SHIP uh, called Reconnecting with Our Bodies After a Pandemic. So I wanted to dig in a little bit into that, if you don't mind the, the pivot. Yeah, definitely. Um, so when it comes to body liberation, what do you find are the common barriers on a personal level and on a societal level? Mm. Yeah. Well, on a societal level, capitalism is a pretty big barrier to body liberation because capitalism has such an interest in um, in our self-hatred, in our our being convinced that we can spend money in a certain way that will make our lives better because it will make our bodies better. And then our, our bodies being correct in whatever way that means to our society, like determines our worth and determines our happiness. Um, and that goes also for systems of oppression, like racism and transphobia and ageism and misogyny. Those are all big barriers to body liberation because they all tell us that there's one correct way to have a body and the whole Um, for body liberation to succeed, we have to learn that there's no right way to have a body, that all bodies are inherently good as they are. And every single system of oppression in our culture goes against that. So that makes it really hard, I think, to practice body liberation culturally. And that makes it really hard personally, because um, we're all products of our society and even if we understand something intellectually, it can be really hard to go against all of that programming and all of that oppression. And something that I've thought a lot about uh, recently is when certain people are really averse to body liberation and really averse to hearing that it's okay to be fat, for example, um, or that their bodies are good how they are, that they don't need to diet. Sometimes I just think about, especially when people are a little bit older, sometimes I just think about how much of our lives so many of us have wasted, have, have spent on, 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 on hating ourselves and on being miserable and on depriving ourselves of pleasure and joy and food that we like and forcing ourselves to exercise in ways that feel terrible and to realize after all of that investment that you didn't have to do that and your body was already good, that's like a real grief process to have to come to terms with like, oh, I didn't need to do any of that. I didn't need to spend 40 years of my life or 80 years of my life or five years of my life or however much it was on any of that. Like that was not a thing I had to do. And so to be willing to let go of that might mean a lot of grief and loss work. Um, so that's something that I think can get in the way. And also just like the very re- like real consequences of having a, a body that isn't valued in the society. Like I'm a fat person and I can do all the fat liberation work that I want personally, but that doesn't make this world a better place to have a fat body, right? Like I still right. can't fit in chairs. Like I I recently went to a Phillies game and just like couldn't sit down. I barely fit through the subway turnstile. Like I still have doctors who won't treat me because they just want to talk about weight loss. I still, you know, experience all of these things that don't change based on my relationship to myself or to fatness. And so that makes it hard for a lot of people to accept their bodies because they want to be treated well. And they're in bodies that are not treated well in this society. Right. Those are some, yeah. Yeah, and it's not, it's obviously not fair, but there, there's so many ways that when you walk around this culture and this society, there are so many ways that 
it gets thrown at you that your body is not the perfect body, even though it is your perfect body because it's yours. And it is what carries your your brain and your thoughts and, and your character. Um, but you walk around and, and it doesn't matter what you look like. There will be something that someone is willing to sell you to fit whatever it is. And I'm using air quotation marks here. Um, be it the, the, the coils of your hair, to use my own example, they sell you relaxers so you don't have to have kinky hair or curly hair, um, or they say you like um, skin lighteners or fat burners uh, mm-hmm. or any other gimmick, like those suits that you look like, the potato that you put in the oven, um, those have a name, but those things that do nothing other than make you sweat and uncomfortable. Uh, mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter where you go, there's always something to sell you and tell you, you need to change your body in order to fit society. And that really eats at your self-esteem and at your body image, because after 10, 20, 30 years of that same message going over and over again, no matter where you turn, you can't help but absorb that. There's only so much you can block off and something's going to seep in and it's going to affect you in some way, no matter how much you fight against it. And it takes a lot of work and a lot of effort to shed yourself of those influences. Yeah, definitely. And it definitely happens along the lines of power, right? Like within any system of oppression, there are people's bodies who are more valued than others. Like if we're talking about racism, right? Like lighter skinned people are valued more by our culture than darker skinned people. If we're talking about fat phobia, thinner people are valued more than fatter people. And so there's all these hierarchies. And, and the thing is, it's, it's bad for everybody in the hierarchy, right? So like, if you're a thin person who's valued for your thinness, that's also dehumanizing to you because first of all, it makes us believe that our bodies are what's valuable about us as opposed to all the other things that are valuable about us. And because like, our bodies always change. Like if, if we grow to think like I'm valuable because my body is this way. And then as we age and experience all the things in our lives and our bodies change, then we can lose that value. And that's not how it works at all. Like all of our value is just inherent. And I just, something I talked about in the workshop and I've, I've been thinking about too, is that within nature, we can understand that what makes beauty in nature is diversity, right? Like the reason that we find flowers beautiful is not because there's one perfect flower that the closer it is to that flower, the more beautiful it is, right? Like we want all flowers to look different from each other. And that's what is exciting about looking at them. But we, we have so much trouble applying that to human bodies. Um, and we just think there's like one best body and then every other body is like closer or farther from that ideal. But in fact, what makes our bodies beautiful to me is how different they are, how, how nature varies, how every single aspect of the human body is so variable. I think that's so incredible. And if we could shift our orientation to just appreciating that, um, I think that would be really good for us. Yeah. That's a, that's a beautiful way of putting it of we're not, I always hated the the phrase melting pot because that always felt like stripping a lot of us out of our uniqueness. But mm-hmm. the way that you say it, we can be a bouquet of flowers and each flower in that bouquet is different, but they bring beauty to the arrangement of your community or the world. If you want to include everybody uh, at once, that is a beautiful way of seeing it. And if, more people can see it that way and build the world with that in mind, then the world can be accessible for everybody. And then we wouldn't have this steps and hierarchies of who's better suited to do X, Y, or C, or who's allowed to access to X, Y, or C because of their privilege. Mm So how, what can we do as a community to help people that are experiencing issues with their bodies? 
Yeah. So it's interesting because we're, we're here to talk about my workshop, reconnecting with our bodies after a pandemic. And this workshop is very different from my other body liberation workshops. Um, so most of my body liberation workshops are about systemic issues with bodies. Um, I have a workshop called Don't Tell Me to Love My Body um, about fat phobia. And the title is really speaking back to the idea of like love your body campaigns, which are so interpersonal and so targeting um, people's psychology. Like, oh, just love yourself. Just learn to love yourself. When, as I said before, learning to love myself doesn't fix the problems that I experience as a result of fat oppression um, or misogyny. And so I'm really careful about trying to keep it systemic all the time. And then this reconnecting with our bodies workshop is more interpersonal or intrapersonal, right? My relationship with my own body, how I connect with my body. And I struggle there because I don't want to ever seem like I'm implying that the way we deal with um, oppression is just by working on ourselves, because that is not what I believe. And also, I do believe that we deserve to have good relationships with our bodies. And we can do both at the same time. And so in this particular workshop, um, we do some reflection on um, a time that we felt really connected to our bodies when we were young, because most of us um, are born connected to our bodies, right? Uh, so trying to remember and really tune into a memory of, of being really connected to our bodies and then reflect on what experiences we've had that have caused us to disconnect from our bodies and how the pandemic contributed to that. And then I also offer some more historical and cultural information about, um, Christian culture and Descartes philosophies of mind body dualism and capitalism and how those kind of create body disconnection culturally. So I think in everything I do, I want us to be thinking culturally and individually. So yeah, we live in a culture of body disconnection and then we have personal experiences of, of body disconnection. Um, and so I think, I think it's useful to, to reflect on those things and um, make some decisions about how we want to heal from the ways that we've been disconnected from our bodies. Cause it's a form of violence to disconnect people from our bodies, you know, from ourselves. And so, um, whether those are different ways of practicing embodiment, like remembering what felt so connected as a kid, whether it was like dancing around naked or, um, swimming or running really, really fast or, feeling grass between your toes or whatever it was and trying to maybe recreate some of those moments um, and see if they still feel good. Just getting to know our bodies again, um, seeing what foods we really like as opposed to what we think we should eat, uh, letting ourselves rest. I think pleasure in general, pleasure through food, through rest, through sex, through um, self-exploration, whatever else feels pleasurable is a really good way to reconnect to our bodies. Um, and something we do in the workshop is an activity of just setting a timer for five or 10 minutes and just following your body's lead, like just with no expectation, give yourself time and think like, what does my body want right now? Maybe it's just like, I need to drink some water. Maybe it's like, I want to spin around really, really fast. Maybe it's like, I want to scream or stretch or whatever it is. Just being like, I'm just going to do what my body needs. That that's been helpful to me. Um, in reconnecting with my body. So I think we all deserve to, to feel as connected as we can to our bodies with, with no pressure, because if we can't, it's not our fault. And then also we need to be making systemic level changes, right? We need to make sure that um, our culture and our physical spaces and our healthcare system and our every system is actually welcoming to bodies of all kinds. So that's my really long answer to your question. <laughs> Does that kind of get at what you were asking? Yeah, and I, I love the long answers. Um, I, I'll take all of the long answers. Um, this, this is great. Uh, so thinking about reconnecting with your bodies and thinking about the, the trauma that we've all gone through this past 20 to 24 months uh, with the pandemic, I did notice that there's a lot of negative self self-talk around um, weight gain and a lot of fat phobic messaging such as oh I've gained so much weight during the pandemic 
uh, I was an asshole to myself, stuff like that. Um, how can someone get through all that noise of the, the pandemic 15 or and all that? And how can we help ourselves not fall through those same self-hating thoughts? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the first thing is we have to decide that weight gain is not inherently bad, right? Like, it's just not. Bodies are supposed to change. Bodies changing is the definition, in my opinion, of being alive. Um, When our body stops changing, that's really bad. (laughs) That means we're no longer alive. And so for me, like, yeah, my body has changed during the pandemic in ways that will probably some of them be permanent. Um, I have new stretch marks. I have a larger body. I don't fit into a lot of the clothes I fit in before. And the thing is, it's not just my body that's been forever changed by the pandemic, right? Every part of my life has been forever changed by the pandemic. A lot of things are different now. And it's okay that my body is one of those things. Um, my body has is impacted by the conditions of my life. And so if my life changes, it might cause my body to change. And I, I personally, for me, just have to accept that. That's how I handle it is like, yep, that's true. It's neutral. It's not good or bad. It's just true. Um, but I think we can just have a lot of compassion for ourselves about all of the ways that the pandemic has made it really hard to have a body. I know for a lot of people, just the fear of disease, the fear of our bodies failing or getting sick is really scary and hard. I know that there's, like you said, increased fat phobia. Um, for a lot of us, there was um, a lot of pressure to exercise, but also maybe less movement than we're used to, like more sitting in front of a screen rather than traveling around. Um, a lot of intensified food and diet culture, um, stuff, pressure. Um, we may be eating really differently when we're just home alone all the time. Uh, and also just, I know for me, something that was really hard about it is just, I was seen less by people in person. Like I have so much more control over the images people see of me because I can see myself on the screen while other people see me. I can, can, I can change my background. I can turn my camera off. Um, and mostly being seen on social media or zoom. And so going back to being actually in person with people can feel scary. Like I don't have control over what people are seeing. And so without trying to change my body, just having compassion that all of that is really confusing and I'm going to have feelings. I think also just knowing that like feelings about our body doesn't mean our body needs to change. Like the feelings are valid. We can have the feelings and work through the feelings and know that they'll pass. And it doesn't mean that there's anything wrong with our body or anything that needs to change about us. It might just mean there's things wrong with our society or there's feelings that we need to process. Um, But yeah, I think just patience with whatever feelings we have and continuing to work to change uh, the world around our bodies and the narratives that we hear. And especially thin people, I really expect them to um, interrupt some of the fat phobia as well and not make fat people always be the ones to step in. Right. That, that is absolutely true. Um, one thing that you did mention that, that I've been trying to do in my own life is the concept of neutrality. Um, my body is not inherently good or bad what is good or bad is my persona my myself um in in the actions that i do and in the the way that i live my life that can be defined as good or bad um according to my own uh set moral code um in my own measurements not the measurements of other folks um but my body is neutral and that's something that i've been trying to work on because trying the the flavor of body positivity that has been around for a little bit was a little bit too much positivity. Um, And I'm not sure if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but for me it was too much. There, There are times where I look at myself and I can't bring myself to 
be all positive about every single inch of myself from my head to my toes, especially if I'm feeling under the weather or a part of my body is not working the way that it's supposed to be working. I can't feel positive about that. But what I can stop is the hate. And I can go into a neutral position of like, well, my body is doing this because I don't know, I ate that food or because I have a headache or because I have a chronic condition um, or because I don't feel positive about it today. But if I can stop the negative, then that's a good thing. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, body neutrality is really powerful for a lot of people. And I think you're also speaking to an important difference between body positivity and body liberation. Um, And it's kind of what I was trying to get at before too, about don't tell me to love my body, right? Like it's not actually important. Like if you want to love your body and if that's easy for you and you can do it and it feels good, that's great. But that's actually not necessary, right? Um, Body positivity, it can be helpful for people but it does ultimately put the onus on individuals to learn to love themselves in spite of all of this crushing cultural oppression and body liberation on the other hand addresses systemic barriers that people face. Um, and so I just would love to share some quotes about body liberation versus body positivity that are really meaningful to me. Um, Jess Baker says liberation is not having to love your body all the time. Liberation is not asking permission to be included in society's ideal of beauty. Liberation is bucking the concept of beauty as currency altogether. So in that way of thinking, it's like, yeah, it doesn't matter how beautiful my body is. That's not what makes me valuable. I don't need to think I'm beautiful. I don't need to love myself. I just need to know I'm inherently valuable because I have a body and beauty is not important to someone's value. Um, and, and Verdi Tovar talks about how liberation is, is knowing that my body's not wrong because it is fat. It's the culture that is wrong for discriminating against and stigmatizing my body. So um, body positivity can be a really individual way of looking at things. And body liberation is a very systems-based way of looking at the actual barriers that bodies, people with bodies face um, to have what they need. Body liberation says we all deserve to have all of our needs met, including being loved and valued, um, no matter what our bodies are like. So I think body neutrality fits really well into body liberation. And just to say that there's, there's just no moral value to any type of body. Right. Yeah. In the same way that there's no moral value to health and there's no moral value to food, right? Those are just, just (laughs) non-moral things. And, exactly. Uh, yeah. And just all humans are inherently valuable. Yeah. So um, we're coming up on the, on the top of the time. So before we go into the later part of the podcast, the secret later part, um, <laughs> what are your three tips on reconnecting with our bodies right now? I feel like I, I shared some of them already, but I think the first one is do the reflection work of how we got to where we, we are. Um, so look in your life uh, at like, what, what were those moments? What were those pieces that took you away from your inherent sense of body connection that taught you not to trust your own hunger, fullness cues that taught you not to trust your body's information. Um, that taught you to value what you look like over what you feel. Um, so yeah, do that, do that, in that reflection, that journaling, that talking to people, whatever you need to do to kind of figure out those, those moments. Um, I, I do recommend trying the activity of setting a timer and just listening to your body and seeing what comes up. And if it's excruciating, you can stop. You don't need to make yourself miserable, but if, you're able to just keep a, keep a journal or, or some way of paying attention to like, Oh, my body sent me this message today. My body is tired and I'll honor it by resting. Um, I think that can be really powerful and, and yeah, engaging with body liberation in some way, whether that's reading or following body liberation activists on Instagram or whatever medium feels good to you. I think, 
um, being in community with other people who are thinking about body liberation and working on body liberation for me, at least is very healing and connecting. Um, because I don't think, I think sometimes it feels like we have to do this alone. It's like you and your body just off in a, in a room, like doing your yoga by yourself, but it doesn't have to be like that. Um, we can do this with people and with an online community and with the community of scholars. And I think that can really help. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and practicing listening to your body is a big step, but a very helpful step on not only hunger cues, tiredness, uh, what do you need in the moment? Sometimes what you need in the moment is an extra jacket. Uh, yeah. But if you're not listening to your own body because you're so used to getting your body feedback from external sources, simple things like you're too cold or too hot will go unnoticed. Yeah. Not, not counting even... I'm notorious for not drinking enough water. So that's one mm -hmm. of those that that's where I'm taking my training and listening to my body. I'm like, why, when do I need to drink water? Mm -hmm. Because I, I run on dehydration. <laughs> yeah. And for me, I was also like, I wasn't noticing pain. I once went to um, the doctor and they pointed out that I had all this like tightness and kind of scar tissue in my leg from an injury that I had. And suddenly I realized everywhere I walked, I was like, oh my God, this really hurts. I hadn't noticed until somebody else told me this probably hurts. And then I realized it really did. And so, um, yeah, there's all sorts of ways to listen to our bodies. And as I said, pleasure is one of the best ways to connect with our bodies, information and, and just, um, Adrienne Marie Brown talks about the power of pleasure to, to let us know that we're free and that life is worth living and that bodies are worth having. And it's, it's great to engage with our pleasure in whatever way that that is. Yeah. I, I think I know what book you're talking about. I highly recommend it. Um, pleasure activism. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Um, not sponsored content, but it's a great book. Um, I have it here, but no one's here with me, so I can't pass it on. Um, but if, if you know me in person, ask for it and I'll <laughs> let you borrow it. Um, so, uh, we are at the top of the hour and I wanted to share with you a new section of our podcast that has four participants so far. So if you don't mind, we have a couple of hot seat questions that have nothing to do with our topics and they're just for fun. Okay. All right. So the first question is, if you were an animal, what would you be? And why? Oh, boy. Um, so I once did an activity at work where we had to sort ourselves into these animal categories based on our communication style. And in that activity, I was a bear. And I really <laughs> related to that. I, I, feel, I feel good about being a bear. I feel like um, bears can be like a little gruff and like too direct and might be a little off-putting, but are also just like underneath that gruffness, kind of cuddly and um, warm-hearted. Uh, yeah, I, I like a bear. I like the, the image of like a lumbering. I'm not fast moving either. I'm, I'm like a, a big, uh, thumping bear. So sort of like a brown bear or, or, or a polar bear that those are the yeah. ones that are big and powerful and have the hands the size of murder weapons. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Um, I like that. I really like that. Cuddly and deadly. Yeah. <laughs> um, the next question, uh, what is the best movie you've seen so far these past two years? So during pandemic times. Oh my gosh, that's really hard. I've watched a lot of movies during the <laughs> pandemic time. A lot of really bad movies too. Um, I just watched a movie called Together Together that I really enjoyed. Um, about a man who decides to be a single parent and have a baby through a surrogate. And it's about his relationship with his surrogate. And it's a complicated and really sweet relationship. And yeah, I, I thought, mm -hmm. really cool. I'll have to look that one up. I didn't know that one. 
Um, and if you developed a superpower, which one would it be? Oh, these are really hard questions. Big challenge. They're the fun ones. <laughs> <laughs> um, what superpower would I have? What I really want is to be able to teleport. I really can't stand how hard it is to get from one place to another. Like, I just want to be wherever I want to be and with everyone I want to see just because I just in the moment that I want to be with them. Like, I want to go see my friend in Maine and I want to be there right now. <laughs> I don't want to be there in 10 hours. Um, so that would be nice. Yeah. Given that I just went to customs to get back into the country after vacation, uh, teleporting would be nice. That, that was a nightmare. Yeah. Um, so definitely uh, I, I second that one. Um, <laughs> and then last question in wrong answer only. Why, why is there fuss on a tennis ball? Because tennis balls are actually peaches that have gotten really hard. <laughs> That's the best answer so far. <laughs> awesome. Well, thank you, Izzy, so much for joining us. Um, before we go, I'll give you the floor so you can promote all the things you're doing and upcoming things and also your children's book. I didn't forget about that one. Amazing. Thank you. Um, yeah, so please follow Yes um, at Yes to Consent, Y-E-S-T-O-C-O-N-S-E-N-T -E -E on Facebook and Instagram. Um, that's a really good way to see our upcoming events. We do have two events coming up in December. Um, one will be a story sharing event around birth and the other will be a workshop on how to be a support person for someone in a healthcare visit. Um, and we will have other events coming up soon that I don't even know what they are yet. So please follow us so that you'll know, you'll know when we have events coming up. Um, if you're looking for a, a children's book to, to buy for a kid this holiday season or anytime, um, my book is called The Great Big Hug. It's a story of elephant and meerkat and their friendship and elephant learning to respect friends' boundaries. Um, it's all gender neutral. And you can buy that book uh, at Mascot Books, which is our publisher. It's also online and other places. You can just Google it. Um, and also, if you want to listen to another podcast, my podcast, the Yes Podcast, is called What is Sex? It's on Spotify and Apple Podcasts and I think all the other podcast places. If you want to subscribe and review, that would be great. A new season will be coming fairly soon. Um, I think that's, that's what I got for today. Awesome. So make sure to follow Yes and buy the book for uh, hol the holidays coming up. Um, I, I'm definitely buying it for my uh, brand new nephew. Uh, mm -hmm. So he can have it when he can actually read. He's actually two months old right now. <laughs> so um, eventually he'll be able to read it. So I'm definitely putting it on the list. Um, so thank you so much, Izzy, for joining us. This has been a pleasure. Um, and I hope you stay in touch. Thank you so much. It's been great to be here. You've been listening to Virgin Territory, a podcast by SHIP, a nonprofit organization dedicated to providing culturally inclusive, medically accurate, and pleasure-guided sexuality education, therapy, and professional training to adults. You can visit us online at weknowship.org.